Number 8. God's Mission, 4th Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're ready to start our next lesson, Mission to the Needy, Lesson 8 in the quarter called God's Mission, My Mission. Dr. Daniel Duda is our moderator. Our opening is going to be by Bill Church. Good morning, dear Father. We thank you for this lovely Sabbath day as we gather from around the world to learn and to share our relationship with you. We thank you for this great opportunity that we have. Father, we ask your blessings upon our group today as we study and learn together. We thank you for your gracious love and care each and every day. Thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. And hello to everybody. Good to see you all and welcome to lesson number eight. Now, it's a quarter on the mission and you have had excellent teaching from John Pauline about the mission. When you hear names like Hernan Cortes or Francisco Pizarro, Mohamed Atta or Abdelhamid Aboud, Salam Abdeslam, Naim Lahrumi or Mohamed Abrini, what comes to your mind? What associations do you have? Bob? Well, they were a certain type of missionary. They believed in their causes. They certainly believed in their causes, that's right. So whether they were crusaders or conquistadores, Jesuits or Islamic terrorists, they all believed they have a mission to accomplish. They were on a mission and they successfully accomplished it or would executed it would be a more appropriate, better word. But as a result of their mission, somebody got hurt. Now, traditionally, mission equals evangelism. And evangelism equals getting people to cross the line of faith. And so the traditional understanding of mission is that after people accept a correct set of doctrines, you baptize them, and that's how you get members. And the result is that people feel once you have become a member, once you are baptized, you have arrived, quote unquote. The problem is that this leaves the character unchanged. Self-centeredness can reign unchanged and unchecked, and often it leads to triumphalism, that everybody should be like us. And if everybody, the whole world, was like us and accepted our mission, the world would be a better place. Now, Jesus in Matthew 23, 15 says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. So obviously, in spite of the mission that the contemporaries of Jesus were accomplishing, the world was not a better place because he says, you make the new convert twice as much a son of hell as you are. So here's the important thing. You and I don't have a mission. The church doesn't have a mission, but God has a mission. And the only mission which results in people not being hurt is being part of God's mission. And any other mission there is, you can be sure of one thing, somebody will be hurt in the process. And that's not good. Bobby Joe. It seems to me that a lot of the strategy of mission follows the typical movie, like a chick flick kind of movie, where the only purpose of the movie is to get to that point, And then there's nothing after that. There's no mature life together after that. And I think sometimes the point of mission is baptisms, the number of baptisms, but not really discipling people post that event. Yes. And not asking the question. So 
what kind of evangelism are we doing? What kind of mission are we on? And what happened afterwards? Jesus did not condemn those leaders because they were lazy. They traveled around the land and sea, covered the oceans and continents to add new names to their converts list. Imagine the travel expense reports and the travel budgets. But Jesus says the outcome was outright destructive. And notice the Jewish leaders didn't get such a harsh rebuke from Jesus because they taught the wrong doctrines. They gave good Bible studies on Sabbath, on tithing, on helpful diet. They preached against idolatry, evil associates, religious indifference. And Jesus says, and the new converts are twice as much sons or children of hell as you are. And that's why we need to ask, if seekers become followers, what kind of people do we get? What kind of people are we reproducing? Do we expect people to change beyond the day they rest? the type of food they eat, and the percentage of income they contribute to charitable causes. Because if we do not expect them to be more loving, more gracious, more tolerant, more kind, more interested in people, loving their family more, loving other people more, serving more those who are less privileged, those who speak different language, to be concerned with people of different color, different culture. Have you seen how when new people come to the church, people feel that their church has been hijacked and that people who are different from them somehow This is not our church anymore. Do we expect that people after our mission will not be easily irritated, will not have judgmental spirit? Let's go to Sean. Does mission have to be Christian evangelism? I have morphed into a place in my life when I have challenged myself about that thought. So that's an open-ended question. When we talk about church mission, Do we have to automatically or equally expect the effort to be Christian evangelism? Do we have to bring people to Christ through our mission? And if you look under the question two, we are going to talk about this because the four friends bring their friend to Jesus in Luke 5, 17 to 26. And of course, the lesson is high on that and says that's what we should be doing for our friends. We need to somehow carry them to Jesus, bring them to Jesus. And we are going to discuss that. Let's go to Lou. It seems to me that Jesus spent his time meeting people's needs, their physical needs. He healed people. He fed people. He loved people. And he didn't preach or even do a lot of teaching to the general people that didn't know anything about him. He just loved and met their needs. And I think without hooks, I think we're good as Christians as having hooks in the things that we share with our neighbors. And I think We need to look at Jesus's method, which was just to love people and meet their temporal needs. I love these centers of influence that I see popping up all over in our world and how wonderful they are doing and meeting people's needs. And then when people's needs are met and then they want to know more, they're ready to listen and find out what makes the people providing for their needs different from the rest of the world. Yes, thank you, Lou. And we will cover this and emphasize that true mission always starts with the perceived needs of people. So evangelism starts with listening. If you don't listen, if you don't know what the needs of people are, then it's very difficult to help people. You are scratching them where it doesn't itch and it creates only pain. Henry? Is it fair to say that the problem may not be that the mission is not ours, but to pretend that we know what God's mission is and try to unite in 
what we think is God's mission and not even just pretend that we are following God's mission, but trying to align him on our mission. Say, well, God's mission is to baptize people. God's mission is to give them some doctrines. God's mission is to change their religion. God's mission is to change the way that they dress or that they eat. Instead of referring to the original mission that God set himself for this world, at least in Genesis 3, when he says, I will put enemy between evil and good. I'm paraphrasing the expression of between the women and the serpent, both as representatives of moral choices. And that was his mission. And we have hijacked his mission and thinking that in order to accomplish that, we need to change a whole bunch of things that he was not interested to change. So if we understand his mission, we will align on his mission instead of allowing him on ours. Yes, thank you. That's very important because people get carried away and it gives them certain boost that they feel we are accomplishing God's mission and they don't have the clue what is God's mission. Jesus says in John, the Gospel of John, people are going to kill you and think that they are serving God, but they have no clue who the Father is. And so that's why we said that you don't have a mission, the church does not have a mission, but God has a mission. And he uses his church to accomplish it. And that's why our first question must be to understand what is God's mission and how to align with it. Otherwise, we are going to hurt someone else in the process. Rita? I was thinking that when you were describing the various sort of types of mission and what Henry was saying, if we're on a mission to make others join us, to make them like us, we will be no better than the dragon that dragged a third of the angels from heaven with his tail. He forced them out by out of their own free will, more or less, because they were deceived as evil. We would be doing the same. And we need to avoid that. Yes, definitely. So Lucifer, or dragon in heaven, was on a mission, and he deceived one third of the angels, intelligent creatures. All right, so we are behind the half of the quarter, so lesson number eight. So I thought, let's repeat this and let's get this cleared out out of the way so that we remind ourselves that unless our mission is realigned with God's mission, we are going to do more damage than good. All right, this lesson is on the mission to the needy. And let's go to the first story, the lesson for Sunday, Luke 5 from verse 17. One day while he was preaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting nearby. They had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Just then some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a bed. They were trying to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Then the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, who is this who is speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their questionings, he answered them, Why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Stand up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, 
He said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, stand up and take your bed and go to your home. Immediately he stood up from before them, took what he had been lying on, and went to his home, glorifying God. Amazement seized all of them, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen strange things today. Okay, thank you. So here's a question for you. Why would this story from the Gospels be listed in a lesson on serving the needy or serving the poor? Yes, Nancy? I was wondering if it's been included because Jesus referred to their faith, the plural faith, had helped him get well, and that he was talking to the group of people that carried the man, that perhaps the lesson is addressing how they helped the man, this group of friends, to get help from Jesus. They served him. He could never have gotten there without these people's help. And they were very intent on getting him help by tearing up the roof. Yeah, so they had a clear intention to help their friend, and they didn't get discouraged when they encountered difficulties. And yes, that's the answer in verse 20, and it's quoted a few times. When Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, you have to be careful how far you carry that text, because people who believe in infant baptism to some degree, base their beliefs on this story and actually this verse, that God looks at the faith of the godparents and the parents, and on the basis of their faith, he accepts the child into the family of faith. And of course, Baptists and Adventists, or those who believe in the baptism of adults, and that your personal faith is needed, would have a problem with interpreting the story and the text this way. Dan? I'm impressed by that story because it's so different from almost every other story we have in the New Testament, which is healing ill people and other miraculous things. This is one of the few stories in which we see that God, in the form of Jesus, is healing, is aware of the psychological needs of people. And that person would have been very happy to leave at that point, I think, because his psychological needs were met. I would say that that's something that we don't deal very well with. I think people who have those kind of needs, because we don't know what to do for them, we sort of push them aside. But I think Christ knew exactly what his needs were. And if it wasn't for these other people, that would have been the end of the story. The individual would have been happy. Jesus would have been happy. And no one else would have known what really happened at that point. Okay, thank you. And we will go in a moment in what it means now for us. But let's go to Rita first, and then to Henry. Your questions were always provocative, Daniel. <laughs> and I always think there's something more here. <laughs> and I was just thinking that the need, was the need for people to know that Jesus was the Son of God? The need wasn't necessarily to heal the paralytic. Because the not need- all paralytic people in the time of Jesus in all of Palestine were healed. Yeah. But they needed to know or needed to understand that this man standing in front of them was the son of God, that he was God. And he showed that in a number of ways, not least because he read their minds. And I think my understanding is that at the time, anybody who could tell you what you were thinking had to be from God. Yes. And that's the question we need to ask. So why is Luke mentioning this story? And what was important then? What was the meaning of the story then? And of course, Mark has it as well. But let's go to Henry. 
And of course, I am going to ask those questions. Otherwise, you don't need a teacher. That's the role of the teacher to help you to explore things you would not have thought of yourself. So, yeah, Henry. Agreeing with what Rita was mentioning, I was going to focus on that part, but wanted to answer your initial question first. Why this story was chosen for this study today? And I'm afraid, at least that's the feeling that I have, that it was chosen to try to put us on the mindset that we need to do something, right? That we need to facilitate, that that's our mission, right? To facilitate, to put ourselves in the shoes of these people that was willing to take the friend, but the story doesn't talk about it. So I think that we are trying to use this story in order to get more people aligned in the mission that we think it is. And Jesus is absolutely talking about something different. Rita already mentioned that, and you have second that. The purpose was completely different, that Jesus didn't even address the faith of these people. It's Luke, the one that says that he knew, the, but they didn't know that because Jesus didn't express that. He actually addressed the paralytic and to make the point that Rita was just making, you need to believe that I am not here just a magical healer, but actually having some divine mission to accomplish. And that is you all are forgiven. Yes. So it's not necessary that the intention of the preacher or a teacher is in line with the intention of the author. So we can have a different intention when we read the story of the Bible than the original author had. That's okay. But our intention cannot go against the intention of the author because then it's an abuse of the Bible. But otherwise, as you mentioned, we concentrate on the incidental, trivial aspect of the story. Once again, it's okay if it helps you to accomplish something, but hopefully in the purpose, we don't miss the original purpose of the story, why Luke mentioned it. And why not concentrate on the fact that they took the roof apart? That's incidental, but that was the only way to accomplish their purpose. So yet we concentrate on when Jesus saw their faith. And so that's why we should be bringing people, our friends to Jesus and in a second, we are going to say what it means and what kind of impression do we create with using the language like that. Now, Pharisees are a lobbying group. You understand after the exile, when the whole nation goes into Babylonian exile, some people say, oh, the reason why we end up here is because we have not been faithful to these commandments of God and the requisite that God requires from us. So let's make sure that this story is not repeated again in the history of Israel. And so they create this pressure group, this lobbying group, the pious ones who look down upon the commoners, the Amha'areds, the people of the land, who are not as pious and as faithful as they are, because they believe that if we meticulously follow everything that God has commanded, then Israel will be what God intended Israel to be. Now, they are all over the small country. They are powerful. And when Jesus comes with preaching the kingdom, they come to check out on this young prophet and rabbi, what is he doing? He speaks about this coming kingdom of God. So he is in competition to them, but he got it all wrong. He's speaking about a different type of kingdom than they are. He's not talking about getting rid of Romans. He's not talking about restoring the greatness of the Jewish nation. They believe that if they keep everything, then God will be able to act as promised, judge the pagans who were oppressing Israel, liberate his people. And so 
they come to check out on Jesus. Who is this prophet? What is he doing? And now they get what they are looking for. When the roof is taken apart and the man is lowered down, Jesus looks at him and says something completely unrelated. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, nobody expected this because they bring him for healing. Yes, Jesus goes into the talk about the forgiveness of sins. And here is why Luke mentions this. Because verse 21, when the scribes and the Pharisees heard that, they immediately began to question, who is this guy? Why is he speaking blasphemies? Now, you need to understand that unlike medieval church, in the Old Testament, the priests are not in the forgiveness business. They cannot forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And there is a procedure, what you need to do, with the sanctuary, with the temple, how your sins are forgiven. And that's why Luke mentions this story, because he shows that the temple, actually, the sacrificial system, the rituals, the great festivals, the Day of Atonement, yes, they are important, they came from God, but God is doing something new in your midst today, and you are not aware. In all your zeal, in all your being on mission, you missed something important that God is doing in your midst today. And that's why Jesus addresses them and says in verse 22, why do you raise such questions in your heart? So what is easier for you? Is it easier for you to say your sins are forgiven or to stand up and walk? And here's the bottom line. Here's the crux of the matter. Of course, it's easier to say for them your sins are forgiven because nobody can check that. No receipt falls from heaven. Iris, we would say Zettel in German. <laughs> you don't get a receipt falling from heaven. Your account has just been cleared. So you can say your sins are forgiven. The problem is you can't say that because only God has the right to forgive sins. But if you say stand up and walk to a paralyzed man, everybody can immediately check the effectivity of your actions, the effectivity of your words. Because if the paralyzed man doesn't stand up and walk, then you are just talking nonsense. You are just speaking words, empty words into the air. And that's why the story says Jesus turned to the paralyzed and says to him, what? Not stand up and walk. He says to him, your sins are forgiven. And the guy stands up and walks and everybody says, oh, why is this man paralyzed? The fact that he is paralyzed is a proof that he is a sinner. Because if he was not a sinner, he would be healthy and prosperous. And if he is sick and stricken, that means he has done something terrible. He is a terrible sinner. And that's why Jesus goes and addresses the problem of sin, says, your sins are forgiven. And the man walks and nobody can question the efficacy of the words of Jesus, because obviously if he is walking, he had been forgiven. But the whole story is about the coming of the kingdom, that Jesus brings the authority of God. And because of that, the temple, the sacrificial system, something that was used by God in the past, is losing its power, its place in the history. And the things are going to be worked out in a different way. And it will be a different kingdom than they expected. Let's go to Bob and then Bobby Joe. A minute ago, when you were starting the discussion, you mentioned how the Pharisees' background and who they are. Are the scribes similar to the Sadducees? Because it seems like in a lot of the discussions between Christ and different groups, the Pharisees and scribes are mentioned quite a bit. The Sadducees 
who are also the other party. And I'm just trying to wonder, were they left out of these debates because they were so far removed from what Christ was teaching that they don't even relate in the debates? At least the Pharisees are debating with Christ. But the Sadducees hardly get mentioned, unless that's the same as the scribes. I was just curious. I don't want to divert too far, but they were the other big party, if I remember. Yes, Sadducees were mostly the priests, and they were the conservative element. They believed only in the authority of the Pentateuch. Scribes were the ones who interpreted the law and took care that the scrolls are preserved. And so they tried to copy them and interpret. That was their job. So you could be a scribe and a Pharisee. You could be a scribe and a Sadducee. So Sadducees and the Pharisees were the two big parties, religious parties, religious groups in the day. Bobby Joe, you had your hand up before. Is what you wanted to say still relevant? It is relevant. I guess I'm just personally processing all this. And so if you don't mind if I personally process publicly. In answering your question in my own mind about why this story was chosen, I thought to myself, is it possible that the most critical issue, the focus of God's mission to humanity is the message of forgiveness? And if it is, then this story's placement at the forefront of this lesson makes total sense because Jesus is showing himself as the master of forgiveness. He's the master of liberating from the clutches of despair, of sin, grasping the sinner. He's the liberator from the clutches of sin so that this person who's paralyzed because of his despair can be liberated. And I think that that really just hit home suddenly to me at this moment and made me think that our message ought to be the same. It ought to be the message of reconciliation with a father who loves, a father who's opening wide the homestead to wayward prodigals like me and like that paralyzed man. Yeah, excellent. And that's why once you understand what the story meant then, you can understand what the story can mean for us now and what is the lesson that we need to be in the same mission as Jesus is in the mission of liberating people. And we need to establish that early in the lesson, because when we talk about the ministry or mission to the needy, we can easily say, okay, just give them $10, you know, eight pounds or 10 pounds, $12 or $15. Yes, are you liberating them? Not necessarily. And then you might have a good feeling, a warm feeling in your heart, Oh, I helped, I was not indifferent, but you are not accomplishing the mission. And so this brings us to the question, what the story means now for us? And back to what Dan Kiddo mentioned, that yes, Jesus sees the deeper needs and he addresses those. He's not oblivious to the causes and the effects. And he says, okay, now you can walk, but let's make it plain. If you go back to where you have been before, then miraculous healing is not going to accomplish for you what you expected. If you had a miraculous land and you could help people who are overweight, that overnight they would lose significant amount of weight, what percentage of them within a year, five years or 10 years would be back in the same problem? Because miraculously losing the weight, it's not liberating It's just taking symptoms, not the problems. And how do we understand that Jesus says, I want to liberate you? Yes, movement of the members of your body is important, but there are certain things which are even more important. And as we mentioned when Rita spoke, 
Yes, this paralyzed man was helped, and surely he went home praising God, and people got the message and the lesson. But not all paralyzed people in the times of Jesus have been healed. Not all paralyzed people in our world are going to be resolved or healed by tomorrow, next week, next month. But the gospel must be for them. There must be some liberation that Jesus and God bring to everybody. Sean? I am unclear as to how this story effectively teaches that physical disability and sin, or that sin is the cause of physical disability. I'm not sure that it relieved the audience of the erroneous teaching that, oh, this man has long since been a sinner, and so he is paralyzed. I'm not clear about how this experience helped the Pharisees or to dissuade the Pharisees from that teaching, from that error. But that's not the intention of Jesus, or that's not the intention of Luke. That's why he mentions the story. You see, the connection between health and punishment or how disability is the result of our own action is a legitimate question that we as people of 21st century have. And because of our Greek thinking from cause to effect, we ask that question and we need to answer it. But we need to be very careful when we take ancient writings like the Bible so that we don't ascribe that all disabilities are somehow the cause of people's action, because obviously they are not. But what Luke is concerned with is to show that this new rabbi, who knows that he is God, now if he comes at the beginning, and this is Luke 5, the beginning of his ministry, and says, by the way, guys, let me tell you, I am God. How long is he going to last? By the end of the week, he's stoned because of blasphemy. He has no chance to survive and to accomplish his mission, his liberating mission. So what does he do? When he is interrupted in his religious service, in his worship service, in his preaching, he takes that, okay, time out, teachable moment. He looks at the guy and says, friend, your sins are forgiven to you. To which his audience reacts predictably because says, this is blasphemy. You are not in this business. You cannot forgive sins. So Jesus asks a leading question. In your mind, according to you, what is easier to say? This or that? Or this one, because then you can check the efficiency of your words. So let me tell you something else. And everybody knows that if the man was healed, his sins have been forgiven. Yet nobody can catch Jesus because he accomplished his mission of showing the liberation that God brings in such an amazing way without provoking them beyond the level of tolerance. If he said, I am God, he would be stoned. This way, he's going to survive three more years. Now, sooner or later, he will get into trouble and they will get to him and they will crucify him because his job is to be the Messiah. His job is not to be a local church pastor for the next 40 years. And that's why you have to lead them differently when that's your job than if your job is to be the Messiah. But as we say to the seminarians and pastors, the good news is that the Savior has arrived already and it's not you. Okay, let's go to the question. So when we say that we are supposed to bring people to Jesus, what do we imply with this? You know the story about the scout and the old lady who is all bruised and battered, and the policeman arrives and asks him, so what happened here? How come the old lady is bruised and battered? And he says, oh, I wanted to do my good deed for the day, so I helped her to cross the street. And the policeman says, and so why does she look like this? 
all disheveled, bruised, or because she did not intend on crossing the street. So if our job is to bring people to Jesus, what do we imply by that? Now, the friends brought their friend to Jesus, for sure. The lesson says, according to Luke, Jesus approved what they did, that they took apart the roof. I put in my notes, what about the owner of the house? Was he as happy as the paralyzed man or somebody else? But that's beside the point. Okay, when we say our job, our mission is to bring friends to Jesus. Debbie says in the chat, actually, to bring Jesus to people. Do you carry Jesus in your pocket? Can you bring Jesus to people like a bottle of water or pocket knife? Let's go to Rita and Bobby Joe. We seem to have been led to believe for a long time that it is our job to bring people to Jesus. That, to my mind, is like saying, whether they want to go or not, you must take them. And I think the worst possible thing you can do is to drag somebody to Jesus who doesn't want to go there, isn't ready to go there yet. Because you'll lose a friend, if they were your friend in the first place, and there's a high likelihood that Jesus will lose a friend, God will lose a child, because being forced into something just leads to rebellion, and you kick back against it. That's right, you don't want to be a project of someone else. And of course, because they don't want to go to Jesus, so you can't bring them, then the next effective thing is to scare them and say that Jesus is coming the day after tomorrow. And if you have not been brought to Jesus by then, you are in deep, deep trouble. Now, does that create a good relationship? Can fear create a genuine relationship of love? If love is awakened only by love, then we have to be careful about this bringing people to Jesus because we can do more damage than good, and we are back to the quarter on a mission. We don't have a mission, and our mission is not to bring people to Jesus. That creates an impression of the distant deity somewhere, immovable, and we need to bring the people to him. According to the Bible, Jesus is active in that process. He's the one who goes to people. He seeks them out. We don't need to bring them to Jesus. He's the light that enlightens every person born into this world. And so if we don't need to bring people to Jesus, because Jesus is actively pursuing them anyway, what is it that we need to do? And we will look into that when we look into other stories of this week. Bobby Joe, When Terry was reading the passage, there were two things that jumped out at me. One of them was in verse 17, at the end of 17, it says that the power of the Lord was present to heal. And the second, if I'm correct, her version of the Bible in verse 20 When Jesus saw the faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. My Bible doesn't say friends. It just says, man, your sins are forgiven. But if I remember correctly, in her version, it uses the word friend. And when that was read, it just jumped out at me that Jesus was focusing on a relationship. He was addressing someone on a deeply personal level. And I think that it only works for someone to respond to Christ when there's that sense from them that Jesus looks at them through eyes of friendship. So if we're going to ever be successful in quote-unquote bringing people to Jesus or bringing Jesus to people, it has to come from that point of friendship. Excellent. That's right. So let's not talk about bringing Jesus to people because Jesus is not an object that you carry in your pocket or in your wallet, in your purse, or in your backpack. So we are not bringing Jesus to people, because that emphasizes that we do something that we can't do. And Jesus himself 
takes the initiative. And let's not talk about bringing people to Jesus, because that creates an impression of a distant deity, static deity, while the Bible is very clear that he's the one who is pursuing people. And through his Holy Spirit, he speaks to them when they can't sleep at night in a gentle and sensitive way, so he doesn't overdo it. And that's why the important aspect that we talked about in the introduction, in the quarter of mission, that we always need to emphasize that our job is to be aligned with God's mission. Otherwise, people are going to be hurt in the process. We don't have a mission, but God uses the church to accomplish his mission. And in that sense, we have a mission, but our first job is to be aligned with God's mission and not to expect that we are going to baptize or sanctify whatever missionary method we have and sell it under the rubric, this is God's mission, and so you have to listen to me. Henry? I think that so many times we use so many formulas that we don't even understand that they've become practice when we talk about bringing people to Jesus or that anybody that claims his name will be saved. And we make all of those connections thinking that those are just practical actions that have to take place. On Jesus' mission, his mission was to show the Father or to take people to the Father. And he was not taking them physically. But when he talks about his accomplishing his mission, he says, I have shown them your name. I have shown them your character. That would be probably the best way to show that to people, not even needing to take them anywhere in a physical place, but to show God's character, which will eliminate the problem of proselytizing. Because then you can show love, you can show that you care without needing to force anybody to believe the same thing that I believe. Thank you. So this idea that we bring Jesus to people or that we are bringing people to Jesus, what is the consequence of that in the minds of people? Karen? So sometimes I get really concerned about people who have a big stack of, of books and they want to go out in the community and they think that the one thing, the best thing they can do to share Jesus is to just hand out books to the community with no understanding of their community, no interaction with them. They just want to give out a book with maybe some scary pictures on the front and a language that's so archaic, people don't understand it today. And they seem to feel like just by handing these books out, they've done their duty. They brought people to Jesus. And if these people don't want to read the book or throw it in the bin, they've had their chance for Jesus and that's it. And that just makes me so sad because they're not engaging with people or listening or caring. They just think, when I tick this box and given this book, then I can pat myself on the shoulder and say I've done a good thing. But sometimes we're doing harm. The books aren't the right moment for these people, may not say things that are appropriate in their culture and context, and they could do more harm. Once you establish the relationship, the book can be a helpful tool. But if you don't have the relationship, just flooding the city with books is just ticking the box. And once again, it can do more harm than good. Let's go to Aaron. When Paul is preaching on one occasion, he said, I found this inscription to the unknown God and who you ignorantly worship. And I'm going to tell you about him. I think that we are in a similar situation in our day. People don't know God. They don't know who God is and they may have rejected what they think God is, but God is seeking to speak to their hearts in different ways. And so sometimes like you're saying, we don't bring Jesus or bring people to Jesus, but I think those are metaphors for in our life, revealing the love of God. And there's a neat saying in Steps to Christ that through us, they may come to see something of his goodness. 
we aren't a perfect reflection. We're not going to reveal his entire goodness, but they might see something of his goodness and be led to serve him. So I think that's the concept. Thank you. Arthur? I'm trying to reflect on this thought of bringing Jesus to people. Firstly, I want to reflect on it maybe as an African, someone from Zimbabwe, and how missionaries came to bring the gospel to Africa and all. And currently, I have an impression that a lot of people in Africa right now are having questions about the benefits of believing in God, because to a largest extent, they want to tie the coming of missionaries to how they were immediately followed by the colonialists and all those things. So I find that in a lot of circles currently, pan-Africanism is on the rise and people are questioning why they should continue believing in a Christian God when their day-to-day lives are not improving. So I'm maybe thinking about how we may, as we bring this good news about God's character and, and everything, we may have a way in which we help people address their felt needs, have a way of surviving, find a way of having a means to survive. Because when I was younger, definitely I thought Jesus was coming very, very soon. At some point, we thought it was the year 2000 and he didn't come. And the challenge is when you think, let me just accept Jesus and everything, this poverty will go soon, as soon as it comes, and it doesn't come, you start to question it. Then on the other hand, I've come to the UK, and I find that in my church and other churches that I've gone to, there are a lot of immigrants who are in the congregation as opposed to English people. So I also find that here people don't need God at all. And I've had conversations with a friend of mine who is an Englishman to try to find out why is that people who are here don't feel any need of God. While maybe in Africa, someone would have argued that it's because of our constant economic problems, then we are seeking for a way to escape out of those problems. So we need to pray to someone to just escape out of our problems. So I've talked about Africa that we need to attend to their felt needs. And I'm also trying to understand how I can reach out to the culture here where people do not need God because all their needs are catered for in other ways. Thank you. Okay, so that's a good example that on one hand, people would not know about the good news and the gospel if it were not for the eunuch who brought it to Ethiopia and the missionaries who brought it to Africa and other places because the good news needs to travel to these places. Yet, on the other hand, because people felt they are on a mission, they brought not only the gospel, they also brought their culture, they brought their colonialism, they brought their understanding, and even they themselves were not sure which one is which. And so nowadays we can see also the damage that was done. And then it's easy for people to throw out the baby with the bathwater if you don't process it properly and see, yeah, this was good. And everything that is human has its problematic aspects of it. And we need to keep what is good and discard and do better in matters that we didn't do well. John. I understand the comment that was just made right now. However, sometimes I wonder if we say it's a lack of need when it's really not. By that, I mean, when I have the conversation with someone who isn't a believer or doesn't see God as something they want in their life, the conversation has never been, I don't need, because there are things that they do need that they 
are not able to figure out that they're working through and they're going about it in different ways. They're looking to close that gap in a lot of different ways. So it's not a gap that's not there to fill or a need that's not there to fill. I just think that to them or to the people I've spoken to, right? I'm overgeneralizing when I say to them, what they're actually saying is their needs have not been met through having a relationship with God in the way they understand that relationship. So I think it's needs not met in the same way, just not necessarily the same needs. So it may not be food and shelter and so on, but there are some needs that are not being met there that end up showing up as if they don't need God. Whereas it's just they're looking to fill that in any way they can. And they've just, in their experience, not felt that God has been able to fill those needs. So they're now looking for it elsewhere and have given up. Yes. So that's a very good comment. Thank you. And that's why our job is to address the needs of people. Terry, can we go to John 5? Monday's Lessons deals with this Christ method and is based on that famous quotation from Ministry of Healing, page 143, that have been repeated in recent years and a decade over and over again. But let's have a look at John 5. What is Jesus doing? After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool called in Hebrew Bethsaida, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? Okay, so Jesus is asking him about his desires. Do you have any dream? Do you have any desire? What is it that you want? What is it that you need? So Jesus is addressing his thinking. And listen, what is his answer? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Okay, thank you. So you see, instead, he responds to Jesus by giving excuses or the reasons in his mind why he cannot be well. Now, Jesus didn't ask him about that. He knows that he's in the difficult situation for a long time. But of course, he's looking at the pool and he sees the solution from the pool and says, I cannot be well because I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. So notice how Jesus addresses the need of the person. And then. Another story in the lesson is from Mark 1, 23. Remember also, Jesus is often asking the blind man when they come to Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? Now, why is he asking that question? Because he wants them to realize their need. Oh, that I may see, says the blind man. So Jesus opens their eyes so that they can see that seeing is not the most important thing in life. And though the person was certainly happy, To be able to see, ultimately, what he saw wasn't the most beautiful sight in the world. He saw a Galilean street of the first century where the sewage was running in the middle of the street and the sheds. Now, he could put the smells and the sight together, but Jesus is trying to help them through their needs to see what is important. The disciples say to Jesus, you have preached for too long. People are hungry. Send them home so that they can eat. 
And Jesus says, okay, so you care about their needs. Excellent. You feed them. And the disciples say, "Mm, actually, we don't care that much. We are not going to spend our money on them. We are not going to feed them out of our pockets. So Jesus says, okay, so what do you have? No, we have only this. Okay, bring it to me. And Jesus feeds them and he's concerned with their physical needs. The next day, the crowd comes again and Jesus says, I know why you are here. You saved on lunch yesterday, so you came today. And the people respond, who do you think you are? Moses did it for 40 years. You fed us once and you think you are somebody special. And Jesus says, instead of feeding you, let me give you a sermon on the bread of life. So he tries to lead them from one need to another need. But God often knows that unless he fulfills our immediate perceived needs, we don't see the bigger needs or the real needs. are not aware of them. And that's why he needs to lead us. And that's why the ministry always starts, as the famous quote says, with mingling with people. Because if you don't mingle with people, you have no clue what are their needs. And you are going in your mission to address needs which they don't perceive as perceived needs or real needs. Rita? And it struck me, just looking at this now and Terry reading it, the invalid was really asking for somebody to put him into the pool. He was looking to Jesus to be that man to put him into the pool. And Jesus didn't respond to the need that the man thought he needed. He gave him something much more. That's right. And Jesus shows that the solution is in a person, not in a method, not in the tradition, however old. You see, verse 4, which you don't have in your Bibles, if you have a modern translation, it will be down in the footnote because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. Now, if you have King James Version, you are not even aware of it, that there is a problem. But if you have a modern Bible, verse 4 is down in the footnote because it's not in the oldest manuscripts. And verse 4 says that the angel of the Lord from time to time would come and stir the water and whoever was the first in would be healed. Now, something must have been happening there, otherwise people would not be there. Today, we know that it was an intermittent spring. So sometimes it blurred there and sometimes the water would be static. It's a pilgrimage place. And people associate healing with the tradition. In Desire of Ages, interestingly, Ellen White, who did not know about the manuscripts and the fact that verse 4 is not in the oldest manuscripts, there was no way for her to discover it from her Bible. She says in Desire of Ages, people thought that the angel of the Lord was stirring the water. So she puts it on the level of folklore understanding. And Jesus shows the solution is not in the tradition, it's not in the folklore, the solution is in the person. Terry read the the name of the place was Bethsaida, the house of mercy, and the man says, there is no mercy in this house. I have been here for 38 years and nobody is helping me, everybody is just thinking of themselves. There's no mercy. And so instead of that, there is a person full of mercy standing in front of him. And so notice, follow me is step five. And back to what Karen mentioned, if distributing the books like the leaves of the autumn is step one, then you are not doing God's mission. Because for Jesus, to bid them follow me was step five. But first you need to mingle, then you need to show sympathy. When you mingle and you don't show emotional involvement, you are not going to help people. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And if you reduce Christianity to cerebral teachings, this is back to what Arthur mentioned. Some people say, I don't care about those cerebral ideas. I have my own in a postmodern society where everybody has their own truth. Why should they listen to your truth? So he mingled, he showed sympathy, then he ministered to their needs, he won their confidence, 
and only after winning their confidence, step four, he was able to extend the invitation to them, please follow me, you will see the transformational change in your life. That's why we said in number three, there needs to be a strategy in place for listening. I said it many times before, but let me repeat, there are two types of people in this world, those who have questions and those who have answers. And the greatest tragedy is when those two meet. Because if you see yourself as the one who has the answers, you don't need to listen because you already know the answer. Yet the book of Proverbs says, if you answer before you hear a question, you are a fool. Somebody said it so well, Adventism is answering 16th century questions with 19th century answers. So when Catholicism and Protestantism split in 16th century, there are certain questions that are raised by medieval people. And Reformation gives answers to those 16th century questions. Now, Adventism upgrades those answers with 19th century answers. The problem is, as Arthur discovered, some people in 21st century are not interested in 19th century answers to 16th century questions. So you need to discover in the process what are the questions, what are the needs, and what are the answers. Remember, when Queen of Sheba came to see Solomon, the text says in 1 Kings, she asked him hard questions. George McDowell, a Christian apologist, says unbelievers have hard questions. Now, most of us don't even know that because if you don't rub shoulders with unbelievers, if you don't mingle, to use the language from Ministry of Healing, page 143, quote, if you don't mingle, you have no clue that they have hard questions because you live in your own bubble. Of course, the good news is Solomon was able to answer them, and Josh McDowell says, and we have good answers. But the answers are not going to be found under the bed or under your pillow if you have no clue what the questions are. And so the strategy for listening must be in place. And that's why the five steps are important. Now, the lesson for Monday says, we generally can't do the kind of miracles that Jesus did. How can we still minister to people in need? Would you want to do the miracles that Jesus did? Would that solve the problems of people? Because the impression how it's used, it says, sadly, we can't generally do the miracles that Jesus did. But why was it that Jesus increasingly refused to perform miracles? And when Herod offers him, I have the power to let you go. When Pilate offers him, do something for me. Jesus says, that's not why I was born. That's not why I am in this world. I am not a miracle worker. That's not my job description. And back to what Bobby Joe mentioned, he's in the liberation business. Bobby Joe. I was just thinking back on so many lesson discussions where time and again, it just seems like acts of power on the part of God or acts of miracles rarely were effective long-term. They were used, it seems, in emergency type of measures, but it didn't ever seem like it was effective long-term. And I just see time and again in our discussions how you and the team would come back to the fact that God rarely goes that route because sinners don't really respond permanently to that kind of thing. Yeah. All right, let's go to lesson for Tuesday says, refugees and immigrants. Now, there are 71 million displaced people in this world. So let's read Deuteronomy 10, 19 and see how Things punishing from Torah can be helpful for us today. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Okay. Psalm 146, verse 9. 
So in the Deuteronomy text, Moses says to people, and remember how it felt when you were mistreated by the Egyptians. Make sure you don't forget your story. Treat them in a way that you would like to be treated when you were in their situation. Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the strangers. He upholds the orphan and the widow, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. All right. So the Lord watches for those who do not have, those who defend them in the society. And in that society, it was the widows and the orphans. And God reminds Israelites how they should treat alien. So while in the surrounding nations, it was your duty to return the slave to the owner in Israel, you could not do it. They had the law that they cannot return the slave to the owner. They're different from the nations around because they have been slaves in Egypt. Henry says in the chat, only those who are forcibly displaced that they count. But even if you take that there are 71 million forcibly displaced people and there are 22 million Adventists, that means 3.5 refugee per each member of the church. What's the best way to help? Henry? I'll submit the idea that the best way to help is not focusing on the forcibly displaced or the ones that seems to be in worst circumstances, but our neighbor, the next one to us. Because we all have been forcibly displaced. None of us chose to live in a world with a sin. None of us chose to be born in sin. So help is needed here in my home and there in your house and in the neighbor. So with the mission of God, just to offer that knowledge of what good is, not necessarily a dogmatic way to present it. Yes, so complex problems won't have simple solutions. And because the needs are huge and the resources are limited, the solution is not to move people from one part of the world to another part because you create problems that you cannot solve. But if you are indifferent to the people in need, it has some impact on you. Bobby Joe? I'm asking myself, how willing am I really to get involved in a meaningful way? Because getting involved to really create something that's meaningful to a person in need to liberate them from whatever it is that's suppressing them will cost me a great deal. And it's so much more pleasant being insulated by acts that don't really engage me, that keep them there and out of my comfort zone. But when you look at the list of things that Christ invites his followers to do things like visit those in prison. I mean, that takes a lot of courage because you rub shoulders with people who, once they're out of incarceration, what will they do to you? You know, things like that. So I think the Christian has to ask themselves, what am I willing for discipleship to cost me? The example of Christ was to step down and stay engaged until the liberation was effective. Am I willing to do that? Am I willing to stay engaged until that paralysis that person feels, whether health-wise, whether economically-wise, whether or not mental health-wise, that paralysis is addressed in a way that they can move forward? Am I willing to do that? Sure. Willingness is an important aspect of helping, and everything we do has certain costs. The way we serve in the New Testament is by using our spiritual gift. 
that doesn't mean that everybody needs to visit people in prison because uh, Jesus never visited John the Baptist and it was his cousin. So how do I help people so that I don't create learned helplessness? So that I am really helping people within the means and the spiritual gifts that I can help people. Iris. It's interesting when we look at our own, our history in the United States, how Adventism grew. <laughs> and I think it's still true until today. It has usually been immigrants that were open to receive yeah, the message that Adventists were preaching. <laughs> and I think th there's a reason to that, because when you are an immigrant and you come to a new world that is completely foreign, all your ties with your culture in which you were brought up have been cut. And you are looking for new connections, for things that you can build a new life on. <laughs> and obviously, when Adventists were reaching out to the newcomers, there was more of an openness to listen and to hear. And if that gospel was preached in a way that offered friendship, in a way that offered help, then that very often allowed people to make steps they probably would have never made in the old world, where they had to be mindful of what the people think in their village and whatever. I think it is true until today that it is mainly among immigrants that Adventism still grows in the United States, not so much in the well-to-do class. And I think more recently, looking at it from a European perspective, yeah, would we have refugees from the Ukraine flooding Germany right now? I think for this Sabbath school lesson to remind us that our faith is called to action in times of great need. And in the European mindset, it's very easy to just refer to the state. Let the government do that. But I think the numbers that we are facing right now are such, if people who profess to know God, to love God, do not feel called also to action, it's very hard for government institution to accomplish it all. Yeah, definitely. So well-functioning government can do certain things because of the power of pulling together resources that individuals or small communities don't have. And in the countries where the politics is in service of society and the level of corruption is low, the governments can do amazing things that individuals or small communities can't do just because of the sheer volume. But there is still a lot of things that individuals need to do and can do, especially on level of showing sympathy and mingling and putting arms around people and provide spiritual help, which, of course, government can't provide. Let's go to Matthew 25 to complete the parable of the judgment, the last judgment. And it's also our memory text, verses 31 to 40. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father. 
inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. So what's the message? The disciples ask at the end of chapter 23, when Jesus shows them, when Jesus cries over Jerusalem and says, how many times I have tried to help you, I tried to gather you, and to protect you and help you, but you were not willing. Notice, not that you didn't know, but you were not willing. Your house is left to you desolate. And in chapter 24, the disciples come and say, look at these stones. Don't you see the beauty of that? And Jesus says, let me tell you, truly I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down, all will be destroyed. And they say, so tell us, If the temple is destroyed at the end of the world, what will be the sign of the end of the world? And so Jesus gives them some generic signs in chapter 24. And then he says, I know what you are interested in, in the signs, how to catch the last bus to New Jerusalem. Let me tell you what I'm interested in. And he gives the four parables that show what God is looking at. And this is the last one. So what is that parable all about? Karen. I love that this parable seems to be about people whose hearts are so filled with God's love that the kindness naturally flows out of them. They barely even know that they're doing it. It's just innate to be kindness. And it's really interesting to think about people who've been kind in the Bible. I was looking at who fed in the widow of Zarephath and who made a house, and it was the Shunammite woman who made a house for Elisha. And although it was after Jesus, Dorcas makes clothes for people and clothes them. And Mary and Martha are hospitable. And all of those women they all have a resurrection of their child, their brother, themselves, which I think is astounding. And it shows us that the simple kindnesses that we do in life, how much they mean to God, that they have this opportunity of experiencing a resurrection to remind us actually that our kindness is also part of that story. Yes. So Jesus says, you will always have poor with you. Even if we put all our resources together, we can't solve the problem because that problem will be resolved only with the coming of the kingdom, with the second coming. But the fact that we cannot resolve all the problems of this world does not mean that we should do nothing. And notice what is important in that parable is the self-ebasing nature of that help. They didn't do it in order to get something. They are not even aware. They say, don't mention it. That's of course, that's how you behave. And that goes back to Abraham and Sarah. Yes, Bobby Joe put it there. You will be a blessing. Through you, all the families, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. We would have done it to anyone. And the other people say, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger? For you, we would do anything. We would carry your suitcase. We would treat you like a king. We would do this and that for you because you are an important person. And Jesus says, but that's not what I am looking for. How do you treat those people that are on the margins of the society who cannot treat you back the way you treat them? 
that's where the character is shown. And that's where you escape the learned helplessness. You are not making things worse. You are truly helping people because you are sensitive to their needs. And you realize that there is something you can do and something you can't do. But you are not doing it in order to solve the problems of the world because we can't. God didn't ask us to do that. But we are doing because we are sensitive and want to do something for others, as those examples that Karen mentioned. Henry, final word. What strikes me of that parable is that those that are called righteous didn't do any miracles. You don't have to do anything out of the ordinary. It's just just little things that to show mercy, feed, visit, nothing miraculously about it. It won't call anybody's attention. And you will do it just because you find somebody that has that need. And as you mentioned, not because I want you in my books. It's just because I feel that you have a need. And I can meet it as simple as just sharing something when nobody is paying attention to you. So those who are called wicked are the ones who say, we would have done it for you because of your position, because of your power. But you do it because of what you expect that you get in return. or to avoid bad things that happen to you if you don't do it. But those who did it for the insignificant ones, for the marginalized ones, they see people as Jesus did. They see them as valuable, not because of their position in the society, on the social ladder, not because of their clothes, because of their status, because of their money, but because they are human beings, because they are created in God's image. And so this is something, if you look under number nine, Think about some ways in which you can help people and see them through that perspective as valuable creature created in God's image. They are all bearing the image of God. There is not one person that you cannot learn something from. There is not one person that you cannot bless, who cannot benefit, because we are all created in God's image. There are no simple solutions for the complex problems of this world, but that doesn't mean that we should do nothing. We can do something individually. We can do something as a group of believers in our sphere of influence, being part of the larger unit. We can do something in parts of the world where you and I would never travel or could not individually help because of the institution. And it's interesting to hear what ADRA can do, for example, what the church can do because it's in 212 countries. But the important thing is that we safeguard, we protect, we maintain the value of every human being and see that value. And if we do, we are fulfilling that liberating mission that God is doing so that the story of sin one day will be redeemed and ends up in a city where there's no more exploitation, no more needy, no more poor, and the problems will be resolved. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we live in a world where there is so much evil and bad things, and complex problems, and it can be so overwhelming sometimes. And we also see how your children with good intention caused more harm than good in different times and different places. So thank you for a new assurance that no thoughtful kindness is ever too small, that you are always there trying to inspire us, to comfort us, to bless us, and help us to be the type of people who are thinking of others and who bring blessings wherever we go, whatever we do the true children of Abraham, true followers of Jesus, fulfilling your mission until you come and this sad story of the world will be over and we will all rejoice with you for all eternity. Thank you that we can serve a God like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.